Nosferatu. Does this word not sound like the death bird calling your name at midnight? Beware you never say it, for then the pictures of life will fade to shadows, haunting dreams will climb forth from your heart and feed on your blood. Buddy, and welcome back to the dark and spooky Theater of the Golden Silence podcast. Your tickets have been taken, and garlic and crucifixes are being handed out as we speak in an effort to avoid any unpleasantness. This isn't just any old episode of the podcast, though. This is a big milestone episode, as a matter of fact. This is the premiere episode of our second season. We are ringing in 2022 with season two of the Golden Silence podcast. And this second season only exists because of all of you great listeners and all of your awesome support of this little show. So again, as always, thank you all so much. And welcome to the second season of the Golden Silence podcast. The other thing about this show that makes it special is that it's part two of what will be an ongoing series. The last episode of the show focused on Bram Stoker, Florence Stoker, and her legal battles against Prana Film, the makers of Nosferatu. It's a fascinating story, and it was a fun episode to make and record. If you haven't checked out that episode yet, please do. If not, cue it up to play after this episode for a little more backstory on the before and after of Nosferatu's filming. As I did that episode, and this one, there is just so, so, so much cool stuff that surrounds Nosferatu on screen and off. Whether it's the fascinating lives of the cast and crew, to the many remakes and reimaginings, there are so many fun angles and tentacles that spread out from this flick. Nosferatu influenced so much and has so many awesome connections, we will definitely be revisiting it many, many more times in the future. And I cannot wait to share some of the cool ideas I have with you as we expand the Golden Silence podcast, Nosferatuverse. But before we sink our teeth into the episode, let's get the usual business out of the way first. As always, we want to remind you to follow Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for the most up-to-date information on our little program. And for all of you out there on Twitter, just punch in at Golden Silence 1 or search for Golden Silence Cast. There we give updates on the pod, post cool silent film related stories, and other fun cinema bits of all sorts. And also, if you're listening to this program on Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, or any service that allows for ratings and reviews, please leave a review of the Golden Silence Podcast. As those numbers tick up, so does the visibility of the show. As always, we appreciate your support in spreading the word of our little fun get-togethers here and look forward to a second season full of fun new cinematic adventures. Now, as we creak the coffin open on this Nosferatu, what version are we watching? The version we watched here for this episode is the 2007 Kino Lorber Ultimate Edition 2-disc DVD. As with all Kino Lorber releases, this one is top-notch. There is also a more recent Blu-ray edition, that carries over many of the same special features and whatnot, just with the enhanced visuals that Blu-ray brings. 
I'll break down the film's special features later on in the show, but for now, I will say they are robust and definitely worth checking out. And as a special feature nerd myself, I really did dig these special features. Now, I watched the movie two ways. One was with the newly translated English intertitles, or newly translated for 2007, I suppose. And the other was with original German intertitles with English subtitles. Now, as we talk about the movie, I will be using, as a reference, the newly translated English intertitles, but both options are great to view this movie, and while there are some differences, they both get you where you want to go narrative-wise. And as this movie is public domain, there are plenty of places to catch it. If you don't have it on DVD, if you don't have it on Blu-ray, it is public domain, so you can find it on YouTube, other streaming services... If you want to watch this movie, it is there for you, and you should check it out. Now, as far as the actual content of the film, we get a few blurbs breaking down how the version on the DVD came to be from Kino Lorber. We get a little look into their process as to how they put this version together. And a lot of these movies, Lost Films, and especially this one, as we talked about in the last episode... They take awfully circuitous routes to get to our DVD players here in 2022. And this one was no different. And the DVD, before the movie starts, it gives you a breakdown of everything that went in. A point-by-point look at the resurrection of this film. Which, um, if you listen to the last episode, you know Florence Stoker did her best to have everything destroyed, any memory of this movie destroyed. But luckily for us, she failed. And Kino Lorber gives us a look at what came together to make this version we are watching today. They say this in, in the, the opening scenes of the movie. This edition of Nosferatu was restored by Luciano Berriatua on behalf of the Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau Stiftung Weisbaden in 2005 and 2006. A tinted nitrate print with French intertitles from 1922, preserved at the Cinémathèque Française Paris, was used as the basis for this restoration. Missing shots were obtained from a safety print from 1939, owned by the Bundesarchiv Filmarchiv Berlin Koblenz. This print was derived from a Czech export print from the 1920s. Additional shots were taken from a nitrate print of the 1930s version, released with synchronized audio under the title Die Zwölfe Stunde, preserved at the Cinémathèque Française. Most of the original intertitles and inserts were preserved in a safety print from 1926 from the Bundesarchiv Filmarchive, derived from a 1922 film element. They have been newly translated for this edition. And laboratory work was performed by La Imagine Ritrovata in Bologna. The soundtrack is a reconstitution of Hans Erdmann's original 1921 score performed by the Saarbrücken Radio Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Bernd Heller. Now, as I read through that, it really shows how much work goes into keeping these movies alive. The movie may be based on Dracula, but the operation and work to keep this movie available to be enjoyed is more Frankenstein than anything. And as I researched this movie and the folks behind it, there were a handful of books that made my life easier and made this episode super chock full of great information. As you probably noticed in earlier episodes, the amount of backstory and other info can be pretty scant. 
I have to do a lot of digging to get anything about some of these movies. But this movie, Nosferatu, does not at all fall into that category. In fact, it's the super opposite. Nosferatu carries with it a metric crap ton of amazing scholarship. Between the film and German expressionism itself, anything you want to know about this movie is there to be had. Having said that, there are four books that especially contributed to this little, or not so little, episode. The first book that had a big hand in this episode is the 1952 German cinema classic, The Haunted Screen, Expressionism in German Cinema and the Influence of Max Reinhardt, by Lottie H. Eisner. There's no way to overstate how awesome this book is. For many film historians, this book is a bible. The sheer depth that Eisner goes to to break down German expressionist cinema is incredible. From single movie analysis to overarching themes and narrative devices, this book is an invaluable resource. As someone who is relatively new to German silent films, I did find the book a bit of daunting read at first. But as I dive in more and more and see more and more movies, it is settling in as the classic film study others see it as. The next book I'd like to shout out is Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror by Roy A. Seitz. This book is a literal shot-by-shot presentation of Nosferatu with pictures and translations of every intertitle. One of the ways this book shines is its breakdowns of F.W. Murnau's directorial plan of attack. This book presents shots with analysis into filming methods and techniques used by the great director. This is a worthy read to all who appreciate Murnau and his ideas and concepts put to use in Nosferatu. The third book book I learned so much from is part of the BFI Film Classics series. These are books put out by the British Film Institute. These books take a single movie and look back at its history, production, and why exactly the film is considered a classic. The one covering Nosferatu was written by Kevin Jackson. It's a shorter, relatively light read compared to the previous two. This one is super focused on the ins and outs of the fascinating story behind the birth, life, and death of Nosferatu. All the books in this series are worth reading, though. If there is a movie you love and there is a BFI Classics book covering it, do yourself a favor and give it a read. You will, even movies you think you know a lot about, they shine new lights on it and you see new insights and gain new info about it. So definitely check them out. And they're quick, light reads, so you don't have to worry about getting stuck into something too heavy or hard to understand. The last major book in regards to this episode's research is German Expressionist Cinema, The World of Light and Shadow by Ian Roberts. This book runs along the same lines as The Haunted Screen, but in a shorter, more easily digestible length. While it may be shorter, it is still packed with incredible info and insights into a lot of classic films and the awesome creative folks behind and in front of the screen. Picking up one of these books would be a great investment for any film lover. And a big, big thank you to all these authors and all their hard work in making these ideas and concepts easier to grasp for a newbie like me here at the Golden Silence podcast. And as someone who's not like a trained film historian or film viewer or film analyzer, I definitely like having these books accessible to uh, folks like me to help gain new insights into an art form that I love so much. And I think a lot of people out there that are listening to this can gain a lot of those same insights. So definitely do yourself a favor and check out any of these books. 
So now we've got the foundation laid. We got the movie we're watching. We got some of the books that we turned to for some cool information. And so now that we got that little core set up, let's hop into the lives of the people that made this movie a legend, really. And the first person we're going to discuss is the man with the supernatural plan. And that otherworldly fellow is a guy by the name of Albin Grau. Now, under normal circumstances, someone talking about Nosferatu would probably get the show going with a biography of F.W. Murnau. But let's change that up a bit. If there is one thing to be learned about this show after a year on the air, it is that I rarely, if ever, know what I'm doing. So, on that note, let's talk about the man with the ghoulish goals and the macabre master plan. Like a lot of the folks at this time period, and this film specifically, a lot of biographical information is tough to dig up. What I can tell you is that Alvin Grau was born on December 22, 1884 in Germany. While I was unable to unearth much familial info, I can say that Grau was an incredibly fascinating man with fingers in a bunch of fascinating pies. And I suppose for a man with such esoteric interests, it seems appropriate that he have such a mysterious past. Speaking of those esoteric interests, Grau was an architect, artist, and occultist. All three of these vocations would come into play in the making of Nosferatu. Here we turn to Roy Seitz to break down what Grau contributed to the film as both producer and production designer. Seitz writes, He was largely responsible for the look and spirit of the film, including the sets, costumes, storyboards, poster art, and other promotional materials. Jumping back a bit before any filming had started, Grau was the one bitten by inspiration. Again, we turn to Roy Seitz, who writes, Grau had originally gotten the idea for making a vampire film while in, Germ while in the German army during World War I. Apparently, a Serbian farmer told him that his father was a vampire, one of the undead, and the idea took hold in Grau's imagination. On the topic of the occult, Grau certainly knew what he was talking about and knew what he wanted to convey on the screen. Grau is a dues-paying member of the German magical order, the Fraternis Saturni, an order concerned with the study of esotericism, mysticism, and magic in the cosmic sense. Before Grau and Murnau collaborated on Nosferatu, which was shot in 1921, Grau was planning to create several movies devoted to the occult and supernatural through his studio, Prana Films. In the last episode, we talked about the short-lived existence of Prana Film, but here's a little refresher. Enrico, Enrico Diekmann and Alvin Grau founded the Prana, film, Prana Films in 1921. Its intent was to be a German film studio that would produce movies with occult and supernatural themes. According to Seitz, the company name derives from the Buddhist concept of prana, a Sanskrit word for life force. The term refers to cosmic energy believed to come from the sun and which connects all the elements of the universe. When you look at the studio's logo, you will see as a riff on the yin-yang symbol with the prana film written into the symbol. Now, that studio wasn't long for this world. It met its demise shortly after the release of Nosferatu. Between overspending on film budgets and lawsuits from Florence Stoker, this was a one-and-done operation. Like many of the folks in this flick, the rise of the Nazi regime would put a halt to Grau's in-Germany activities. The occult group he belonged to, the Fraternis, 
Fraternitas Saturni was prohibited in 1936 by the Nazi regime. Grau would be threatened by persecution, but managed to get out of the country and emigrate to Switzerland. After the war, he returned to Germany and pursued a career in commercial art and lived in the Alpine village of Bay Richel, Upper Bavaria, until his death in 1971. Now we'll do what most people will do and take a look at the man behind the lens and behind some of the most unforgettable images in cinematic history, and that is F.W. Murnau. You see, one does not simply talk about Nosferatu without giving the lowdown on this legendary director. Murnau, upon birth, was gifted a name more fitting a child in a Wonka chocolate factory than a master of expressionist horror. Murnau was born Friedrich Wilhelm Plumpe on December 28, 1888, to a middle-class family in Kassel, Germany. After a relatively uneventful childhood, it was his time at university that would lead to cinematic awesomeness. While at college, university, he would connect with a group of avant-garde artists. Among this group were several folks who would make great contributions to the expressionist scene in Germany. Author Ian Roberts fills us in on what happened next. Roberts writes, Inspired by the vivacious young people, he changed his name to Murnau after the Bavarian spa village where they vacationed together and pursued his real love of acting. He was discovered by Max Reinhardt. Now, I'm going to pause the action right here for one second, take a little detour. Remember that name, Reinhardt? Max Reinhardt was an Austrian theater and film director of great acclaim and renown, whose name and influence can be seen in the life stories of some of the most prominent movers and shakers in German cinema of this era. In fact, this isn't the only time his name pops up in this podcast. Now that you got that little toe wetter, let's get back to the, to the full quote. Murnau was discovered by Max Reinhardt and began his theatrical training at Deutsches Theater in Berlin, where he became acquainted with the likes of Emil Jannings, Werner Krauss, and a particular friend, Conrad Veidt, wrote, Roberts wrote. That energy and excitement of his post-collegiate artistic endeavors would temporarily slow down when he volunteered for military service in 1914. As far as military service was concerned, Murnau would serve as an infantry officer on the Eastern Front and later he was an observer in a Luftwaffe squadron when he survived, where he survived a handful of crashes. Like I said earlier, wartime would only slow down Murnau's creative juices, not stop them. Going back to Ian Roberts, he wrote, Murnau saw out the rest of the war in relative comfort, even directing some stage plays to general acclaim from local critics. Murnau later recalled that he was also approached by the German embassy in Switzerland to produce propaganda films for the German war effort. Nothing remains of them today to confirm Murnau's anecdote. After returning to Germany, Murnau was ready to go full throttle into the entertainment business. To that end, he resumed his friendships and connections to Max Reinhardt and his acting crew. But Murnau wasn't setting things up for a return to the stage. No, no, no. He had his sights set on something bigger. He was moving up to the silver screen. To do this, he teamed up with good friend Conrad Veidt to form the Murnau Veidt Fiegelschaft, Fiegelschaft, in an effort to break into the moving picture business and enter the moving business he did. And that will be, that's not the first, and it's not going to be the last of poor, poor German pronunciation. So apologize to all the German listeners out there. I'm doing my best here. Their first production was Der Nabe in Blau, 
aka The Boy in Blue, in 1919. Over the following three years, Murnau would prove incredibly active. By the time Grau brought him on board for Nosferatu in 1921, Murnau had directed eight features, so by his early 30s he was a known and experienced commodity. This is when he took the helm of everyone's favorite vampire flick. This partnership would become a good news, bad news situation. As far as bad news, Nosferatu would be a financial disaster. On the good side of the ledger, the film was an incredible critical success. This critical approval pushed Murnau into the upper strata of German directors. Over the next four years, he would make seven films. And of those seven features, author Kevin Jackson points out two of those that deserve a little bit of an extra mention. Jackson writes, of this septet, the two most remarkable are Der Mann and Faust. The former for its wonderfully innovative use of moving camera, and the latter for its astonishing visual effects and mythic potency. Now I will stop in a little break in here again. Faust is a damn good movie. This is already going to be a huge, long, crazy long episode. So I'm not going to slow it down too much by going into too much detail. But it is a great movie and something to be seen and experienced. It definitely carries Murnau's uh, visual flair and spectacle of visual effects. Like I said, I'm not going to linger here too much, but there will be, down the road, an episode where we really dive headfirst into Faust. By the mid-twenties, the glow around the Murnau name started to dim a bit. Derlitz Man, aka The Last Laugh, again, was loved by critics, but the money-paying, ticket-buying crowd stayed away. In 1926, he was approached to make a big Hollywood feature. He was given a generous budget and complete creative control. With all of that in his back pocket, he set out to make Sunrise. While modern moviegoers have warmed to this flick in recent years, at the time, it was another box office bummer. With the financial disappointment of Sunrise's release and reception, Murnau was forced back to simpler means. Gone were the big budgets and creative controls, and in their place came kowtowing to studio bigwigs. 1928 saw the release of Four Devils, and that was followed up by City Girl in 1930. As his slump continued, Murnau broke off his five-year contract with Fox. This new freedom brought a sense of adventure and exploration. He got his captaincy status and bought a 65-foot-long, 16-foot-wide yacht he named Bally. He picked up some classic literature and hit the high seas. Kevin Jackson explains what happened next. He writes, During his time in the South Seas, Murnau joined forces with Robert Flaherty famous as the director of Nanuka the North, whose latest production in Mexico was falling apart. The two men signed a contract with an independent production company, Color Art, to produce a joint feature. But, 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 like all things from Murnau at this point, fate in the universe had other plans. The film company was on the verge of bankruptcy, so Murnau offered to foot the bill himself. To that end, he spent all of his life savings over the next 18 months filming Taboo, this would put him in crazy debt. Oh, and I also forgot to mention, his yacht, it was stolen. All was not lost, however. At the last second, Paramount, the film studio Paramount, came in to bail things out. They had seen what Murnau was cooking up, and they were into it. In fact, they were so into it, they offered him a 10-year deal. That's right, a 10-year contract to make movies for them. And while it seems like the dark clouds in Murnau's life were parting for a little bit of sunshine to come through, 
not so fast. Fate had one last insult to hand out to the director. While the New York premiere of Taboo was scheduled for March 18, 1931, Murnau died in a car crash on March 11, 1931. He was only 42 years old and never even got to see the premiere of his film. Now, that was a bit of a Cliff Notes version of his life, and I definitely, definitely will be stopping, dropping in to take a bigger look at his life. Uh, planning on doing a full biography episode where we can go really into the nooks and crannies of his career, of his filmography, and just really saw what made this guy tick and see some of his influences and stuff. But I think that was a good uh, primer just to get you started on, on him. Next up on our crew and cast roll call is the scribe of the movie, the man who put pen to paper and brought the undead to life, Henrik Galene. Galene was born on January 7, 1881 in Lembert, Galicia, then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He would move from Austria to Germany before the start of World War I. Galene would soon enter the theatrical world as an assistant to Austrian theater director, wait for it, Max Reinhardt. Though I wasn't too studied up on Reinhardt, in reading more, he was a legend in the theatrical world. And that entry-level position for Galene would transform into stage acting not long after. This choice of career was a smart move by the actor. He eventually appeared in stage productions throughout Berlin, as well as a host of other German-speaking cities. As 1913 dawned, so did Galene's career as an a-, a writer. Though it started off a bit rocky with a few screenplays that got him zero credit, Galene kept pushing forward, and in 1915, his career really took off. That pivotal moment came when, in 1915, he wrote, acted in, and co-directed with Paul Wegener, The Golem. If you're unfamiliar with The Golem, it was inspired by a Jewish folktale, and this incarnation involving 16th century rabbi Judah Lowe, Ben Balzalel, who created The Golem to protect his people from anti-Semites. Galene, in addition to co-writing and co-directing, he also played the prominent role of Trodler, the antiques dealer, while his partner in crime, Paul Wegener, played the titular clay-bodied golem. In digging around for biographical info about Henrik, the stuff I could find was sparse. Good, substantial information was surprisingly hard to find. Despite that, I was able to find a really cool article about him. It was written by P.J. Grisser, for the forward website, and it, it was called Henrik Galeen, the Jewish Master of Silent Horror. In among some cool biographical bits, Grisser interviews another interviews author and film scholar Ofer Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi wrote a book in 2012 called Weimar Film in Modern Jewish Identity. In the article, Ashkenazi talks about the Jewish identity and how it manifested itself in Galeen's film career. This is a cool setup, as Galeen definitely amazed film audiences when he so vividly gave life to outsiders on the silver screen. He was drawn to all kinds of monsters, Ashkenazi writes, people who are in between identities, people who want to be something else. This social position of someone who wants to get in but is recognized as other was very attractive to Jewish filmmakers. His monsters are not so monstrous, Ashkenazi wrote. The adventure that was the 1921-1922 filming and release of Nosferatu came and went for Henrik Galeen. With the considerable controversy surrounding Nosferatu, which we covered in depth in the last episode, 
Galeen had to keep busy with new film projects. In the years before Nosferatu, Galeen wrote, directed, or both in seven films. Post-Feratu, he did the same for another 12 or so films. Over the length of his career, he worked with such legends as Paul Lenny, Conrad Veidt, and Brigitte Helm. In 1928, he moved to Britain. The next year, he directed a feature called After the Verdict. He made a short-lived return to Germany in 1931, where he would make his last feature film. That last feature he directed in Germany in 1933 was called The House of Dora Green. The film told the story of spies wanting to steal some technological secrets who enlist an unwitting assistance of a cabaret singer, Dora Green. After she discovers their true identities, she helps the authorities thwart their scheme. It was released on February 22, 1933. Galeen's time back in Germany was bittersweet and cut far too short. Though he returned to the country where he saw his biggest cinematic successes, he saw the rise of the Nazi party and knew he had to leave. As a Jew, Galeen and many others like him were not welcome, and he took a self-imposed exile to Sweden before ultimately ending up in the United States. Galeen died in Randolph, Vermont on July 30, 1949 at the age of 68. Incidentally, in one last credit, Werner Herzog's 1979 Nosferatu the Vampire credits the film as based on Nosferatu by Henrik Galeen and Dracula by Bram Stoker. And no, Nosferatu breakdown would be complete without a look back at the life and times of Friedrich Gustav Maximilian Schreck, a.k.a. Max Schreck, a.k.a. Count Orlock, a.k.a. Nosferatu. As we prepare to dive headlong into this movie, let's bring Max Schreck into the conversation. Schreck was born in Berlin in what is now Germany on September 6, 1879. Now, I... I think you can tell from the way this has gone so far. I am struggling with this pre-Germany Germany stuff. Austro-Hungarian Empire, Prussia, I know there's a difference. And throughout this episode, I am sure I have been incredibly inconsistent. My knowledge of former countries and empires is limited. So if I mess up, I apologize. And again, I apologize once for my pronunciations. But I'm going to apologize again for all our awesome German listeners out there for my terrible, terrible geography skills and my knowledge of countries that no longer exist. That being said, little Max Schreck grew up with a love of acting and all things theatrical, but that feeling wasn't unanimous amongst his parents. Roy Seitz gives us an insight into the interesting upbringing in the Schreck household. He writes, at the age of six, his father bought a house in the independent rural community of Friedenau, his father witnessed Shrek's ever-growing enthusiasm for theater, but did not approve. His mother, on the other hand, secretly provided the boy with money, which he used for acting lessons. Only after the death of his father did he openly attend drama school. After graduating and following a brief episode of traveling with stage companies, Shrek traveled to Berlin, where he met, wait for it, Max Reinhardt. Shortly after, he began to work in films. There's that name again, Max Reinhardt. Just seeing the reach of his coaching tree and how it all comes together for this movie is wild. If he had this impact on just this one movie, I can't even guess what his impact was on all of German cinema. That would actually be a fascinating future episode. We might have to take a look at the reach of Max Reinhardt. What do you think out there? Do you, do you think that's a good episode? Uh, as I am recording this, I am 
grabbing my pen and jotting it down in my future episode idea notebook. So I think that sounds like something cool we can all jump in together. So, But while we're on the topic of Max Shrek, like many of the film fellows we've talked about, Shrek would also have to put his theatrical ambitions on hold as the world fell victim to the Great War. Luckily, he would make it through battle unscathed and soon return to acting. And when you think about it, it is pretty wild how everyone made it through the war and all came together for this movie. As terrible and chaotic as war is, only to see these guys not only survive but thrive is incredible. And in some cases, their war experiences actually contributed to this movie's success in incredibly meaningful ways. It's just a wild thing of the odds that all these people would survive, come together, and make this great movie. Uh... It just kind of boggles the mind when you really think about it. In the early 20s, Shrek appeared in theatrical roles while also making his first film appearance. That movie would be Director von Zalamea, which was adapted from a six-act play for Decla Bioscope. In 1921, he was hired by Prana Film to take on the role of Count Orlok in Nosferatu. After Nosferatu, Shrek found more success in film. While still in Munich, Shrek appeared in a one-reeler slapstick comedy written by Bertolt Brecht and directed by Eric Engel. Shrek starred with cabaret and stage actors Carl Valentin, Liesel Karlstadt, and Erwin Faber entitled Mysteries ein Freiser Salons, or Mysteries of the Barbershop, in 1923. Shrek appeared as a blind man in the film Die Strabe, also in 1923. He would have critical praise for his role in De Strabe, but also experienced the complete opposite reaction when he made his second film with Murnau. That film was De Finanzen des Grosserhozogs. It went so bad that even Murnau never really talked much about it, never had anything nice to say. Despite that film not doing so great, Max Schreck had a very fine career. He had a very busy acting career throughout the 20s and did what many actors and actresses of the silent age couldn't do. He survived the advent of sound. While his film roles slowed down after 1926, his acting sure didn't. He would mainly perform theatrically on the stages of Munich. And he did pretty good for himself in the personal side of things too. It wasn't just the business side. He would marry Fanny Norman in 1910, and they would remain married until his death in 1936. Now, another interesting thing that survived about Max Schreck was how mysterious he was. In fact, he was so mysterious that this led to wild rumors and speculation. Not much is known about all the details of life, and that gave, of his life, but that gave birth to rumors. Rumors that he didn't exist. Rumors that Max Schreck was a fake, and someone else was playing Orlok. In fact, some rumors circulated that he actually was a vampire. And that idea was actually put to film in the fantastic 2000 film Shadow of the Vampire. So, now that we've talked a little bit about the people that made this, let's see what they came together to make. So, now that we have a roll call set up, Let's take a look at the production aspect of things. So the crew began location shooting in the summer of 21. In early July 1921, after leaving Berlin, 
the gang set up shop in Lubick. This town gave the film some of its most important exteriors. These included Hutter's house and the abandoned building that Count Orlock purchases. This rundown building was actually a set of former salt warehouses. By the middle of the month, the company had moved 60 kilometers to Wismar. In fact, the opening shot of the film was shot here. From a platform in the tower of St. Mary's Church, Murnau used a telescopic lens to capture the town. Every visual and shot meant something to Murnau. Every technique was super well thought out. Lottie Eisner talks about this in her book, The Haunted Screen. She writes, In a film by Murnau, every shot has its precise function and is entirely conceived with an eye to its participation in the action. Now, if you're into the vermin game and the vermin life, you'll enjoy this next little bit. The film was always on the hunt for extras, so they took their search to the local papers, but they weren't always looking for human extras. They would even put ads in local papers looking for 30 to 50 live rats. Now, going back to Wismar, Wismar played a big part in this film and the eventual on-screen product. Kevin Jackson explains, Wismar is a port, and it was here on a jetty that the team shot the thrilling image of the death ship's silent glide into the town, bringing death and undeath. Most of the other locations were within a few hundred yards of each other. The large archway through which Orlok passes carrying his coffin, the scene of Hutter mounting his horse at the start of his journey. Next on the shooting schedule was taking the production off of dry land and moving seaward. For the sea scenes, they hired a sailing boat, the Jurgen. Now when it came time to get the Transylvanian exteriors, we had a whole nother company move to another country altogether. Roy Seitz writes, Transylvanian exteriors were shot on location in northern Slovakia, including the High Tatras, the Vranten Valley, Orava Castle, and the Va River, and Starrod. Now, we're going to circle back to old Orava Castle a little bit as we come across it during the movie, but we will get back to that, don't worry. With Slovakian shenanigans behind them, the group made their way back to Germany to get more interiors and wrap up the shoot. These interiors were filmed and completed at the Jofa Studio in Berlin. Filming wrapped in October of 1921, with the premiere coming on March 4, 1922. I can already tell this is going to be an XL-length episode, so we're going to leave the production section with a look at some of the techniques that Murnau used to perfection in Nosferatu. I'm not going to delve crazy deep in this, just because this is... I can already see the timer and it's going to be a long one, but let's take a little, a little quick look before we get talking about the movie proper. Now, one of the techniques Murnau used super effectively was the using of the iris. Now we turn back to Roy Seitz, who dives into this technique and how Murnau got the most out of it. He writes, When used as a transitional device between shots, it resembles an expanding or shrinking circle, which progressively reveals or hides the subject of the shot. Murnau used it extensively and effectively in Nosferatu. He used it in a variety of ways, rapidly, slowly, and partially. He also sometimes used it in combination with other effects, such as the fade-in or the fade-out. Now, another trick Murnau used masterfully was the movement of the actors. Now, this was something I didn't really pick up on on my many viewings of this movie. But when I read this next little bit by Lottie Eisner, I realized I understood completely without totally realizing it at the time. Eisner wrote, 
Murnau created an atmosphere of horror by a forward movement of the actors towards the camera. The hideous form of the vampire approaches with exasperating slowness, moving from the extreme depth of one shot towards another, in which he suddenly becomes enormous. Now, these light but, in hindsight, powerful tricks Murnau used are a masterclass in creating a terrifying world for the viewer, and have forever changed and enriched my viewings of these films. Like, this is really high-level stuff, and you don't really realize it at the time you're watching it, that what's going on. But when you have a lot of these experts and these historians to learn from, you really get a deeper understanding of some of these cool tricks that are used that you don't really notice. Subconsciously, you see them, but you don't notice them. You can't really point them out, but they are there. So now that we've talked a little bit about that, let's actually talk about the movie itself and break down 1922's Nosferatu. So Nosferatu, a symphony of horror from the novel by Bram Stoker, adapted by Henrik Galeen, directed by F.W. Murnau. Costumes and sets by Alban Grau. Photography by F.A. Wagner. And music by Hans Erdmann. As far as cast, Count Orlock is played by Max Schreck. Hutter is played by Gustav von Wagenheim. Ellen, his wife, played by Greta Schroeder. Harding, a ship owner, played by G.H. Schnell. Ruth, his sister, played by Ruth Lanshoff. And Professor Sievers, the doctor, played by Gustav Botts. And Nock, an estate broker, played by Alexander Granich. And we start this movie in act. This is a four-act uh, film. Um, and we're going to look at it, break it down by acts as the movie does itself. So act one, the screen reads, An account of the great death in Wisborg. Anno Domini, 1838. We were in the pages of a book, an old tome or journal setting the scene for the horrors yet to unfold. The next page we see reads, Nosferatu, does this word not sound like the death bird calling your name at midnight? Beware you never say it, for then the pictures of life will fade to shadows. Haunting dreams will come forth from your heart and feed on your blood. Now that is how you set a cinematic table. That is all I need to hear to fill the impending dread of our forthcoming count. That passage evokes such powerful mental imagery, and it's not even a paragraph long. It's unsettling, yet incredibly precise and efficient in its existence. The story being recounted in the pages of this book is the origin and passing of the great death in the writer's home of Weisburg. And it is also the tale of Hutter, his wife Ellen, and Count Orlock. Here, the film opens proper. Bucolic images of the quaint town of Weisburg lead into our introduction to Hutter, who is getting snazzy and dressed for a day on the job at the local real estate company. As he readies himself, Ellen plays with the super cute cat. Now, like I said, this cat was cute, but he is certainly no gizmo and or soda pop. And for any first-time listeners, they are the official cats of the Golden Silence podcast, and probably at some point you have heard them or you will hear them in the background. And they have set the bar pretty high for cute cats. So, And we love those two cats here, and we are pretty shameless in our advertising of them. So if you hear some meowing in the background, that's them. So Hutter, being the charmer that he is, picks some flowers for his beloved and soon gives them to her. She responds to his thoughtfulness by asking, Why did you kill them? such beautiful flowers 
The two embrace as Hutter smiles, appreciating the purity and naivete of Ellen. As Hutter makes his way to work, the author of the book and narrator of our film explains a bit about Hutter's employer. He writes, There was an estate agent named Nock, about whom all sorts of rumors circulated. The only thing for certain was that he paid his people well, we are told. Backing up those weird rumors, the film introduces the crazy, wild-looking fellow examining a paper filled with strange markings and symbols. Certainly not any language known by me. But while we're here talking about this weird paper with the weird language, let's talk about the strange symbols that are on the paper. That occult business of Grouse from earlier comes into play here. We'd better turn back to Roy Seitz, who writes, Grau was able to impart Nosferatu hermetic and mystical undertones such as the cryptic contract and letters filled with Enochian, hermetic, and alchemical symbols that Count Orlock and Nock exchange. When you see these wild images and symbols, it becomes pretty clear that Nock is under the control of Orlock at this point. And as Kevin Jackson puts it, that Nock is Orlock's creature and knows full well the scope of the evil he is helping to unleash. Now, this Nock fellow looks like a deranged German version of Ebenezer Scrooge. He examines and deeply reads this paper and all of its cryptic and esoteric symbols. He cackles a bit before super-focusing on the words before him. It's as if an unseen voice is speaking to him. So, we're definitely getting some creaky, kooky, mysterious, and spooky vibes from Nock, and that shouldn't be much of a surprise to all of you out there who listened to our last episode. One of the many characters lifted from Stoker's Dracula was Nock, who is the fill-in for the crazy Renfield of the original story. And with Nock taking that role, we know things are going to get progressively stranger for our Mr. Nock. So Nock neatly folds up the unusual paper as Hutter approaches. Nock explains that Count Orlock of Transylvania wishes to buy some land, or as Nock puts it, a nice house in our little town. He goads Hutter into making and closing the deal with the promise of big bucks. Nock explains a little further. He says, you might have to go to a bit of trouble, a little sweat and maybe a little blood. Hutter examines a map on the wall, curious as to the exact location of Transylvania. Nock describes the type of house the Count seeks, and as luck would have it, the perfect place is near the estate office and across the way from Hutter's place. We see this abandoned, dilapidated factory building through the panes of a window. This shot of the building, which was, like I mentioned earlier, an unused salt warehouse, is actually quite ingenious. F.A. Wagner put a grid in front of the camera to simulate those panes of a window. That house across from yours. Offer him that one, Nock advises creepily. He sends Hutter off with a foreboding bon voyage. Off with you. Have a good trip, my young friend. To the land of phantoms, Nock says. We have cut back to Ellen as Hutter returns home, clamoring about his trip to the land of thieves and phantoms. The Transylvania Visitors Bureau has got to get its act together... They are not putting out the best imagery to boost tourism, that is for sure. Um, but Ellen senses that there's something weird here, too. Her intuition is telling her something is off. As Hutter packs, she embraces him, and they have a bit of a smooch. But still, Ellen is disturbed as Hutter enthusiastically packs his bags. He sees the financial windfall this sale will net them, and in an effort to give Ellen the best life possible, he misses, shall we say 
some red flags. Thus, Hutter entrusted his anxious wife to the care of his friends, the wealthy shipowner Harding and his sister, we're told. As Hutter leaves, Ellen calls to him and runs to him for a final goodbye. Hutter hops atop, I am sure, a noble steed, and they head out of town. And young Hutter traveled down countless dusty roads, until finally the Carpathians gleamed above him, we are told. Now, in showing this travelogue kind of stuff, Murnau sets up a really cool panning shots of the forest and the huge mountains in the background. It's a dazzling way to show the scale of the story and the production itself, while sprinkling in some subtle doom for our friendo Hutter. Now, Hutter's first stop is for food, drink, and lodging with the locals. As Hutter throws back a bottle of beer, or Stein as this case may be, he explains that he is on a business trip to Castle Orlock. It is this name drop that changes the mood at the bar slash inn. Everyone was happy-go-lucky before, but now the folks clam up and shudder in fear, thinking of the rumors and innuendo surrounding his name and the castle. In fact, the barkeep says Hutter must go no further tonight, on account of werewolves, you know. After the ominous warning, we get some cool footage of a hyena and some wild, wild horses. This gives us some visual representations of the natural horrors the locals spoke of. Now, animals of all sorts play many roles in this film, from the kitten at the beginning to the hyena and horses and plague rats and a crowing cock at the end, animals figure prominently. Kevin Jackson writes, Murnau has often been praised, and rightly, as an artist of landscape. Repeated viewings of Nosferatu make it abundantly clear that his visual imagination was also fired by the beauty, mystery, and menace of animals. After our hit of nocturnal nature, we rejoin Hutter as the innkeeper leads him into his room and gets him all set up for the night. As this is going on, we get more looks at the scared horses, the hyena, and terrified townspeople. Before going night-night, Hutter shudders as he closes his window. He sits back on his bed in relaxation. While he sits, he thumbs through a stack of books on a nearby shelf. Nothing looks too promising until he pulls out a book entitled of vampires, terrible phantoms, and the seven deadly sins. The first page Hutter reads explains our titular creature in a nutshell. The book reads, From the seed of Belial sprang the vampire Nosferatu, who liveth and feedeth on human blood. This unholy creature liveth in sinister caves, tombs, and coffins, which are filled with cursed dirt from the fields of the Black Death. Pretty ominous, but super rad, right? The writing of the intertitles for this movie is legitimately next-level stuff. That description of Nosferatu is amazing, and should be the dictionary definition of a vampire. And while we're on the topic of describing Nosferatu, let's take a look at the origins of the term itself, Nosferatu. In an essay by Bernd Heller, entitled Resurrecting F.W. Murnau's Masterpiece, the author gives a good look at the history of the verbiage. Heller writes, the name Nosferatu was first used to refer to a legendary vampire figure by the Scottish travel writer Emily Gerard in her book, The Land Beyond the Forest, Facts and Fancies from Transylvania. The author mistakenly translated Nosferatu as the undead one. Actually, the term comes from Nosphoros, who in Greek mythology is the bringer of disease. Bram Stoker's Dracula also mentions the name Nosferatu in connection to a particular type of Transylvanian vampire. He obviously took this from Emily Gerard.
The sun rises and a new day begins with the chipper hutter waking up for a new day of estate agent adventure. He peeks outside and sees villagers doing villager things, as they are, I suppose, often want to do. Before getting cleaned up and ready, he has one more look at the vampire book before laughing it off and tossing it on the ground. Soon, Hutter is packed and on a coach heading out on the next leg of his journey into the mountains. Now, we follow this journey via montage, because you've got to have a montage and this one consists of different terrains and locales, but eventually it comes to a stop. The coach driver will go no further, no matter how much money a Hutter is willing to pay. They will not cross over the pass, so Hutter must cover the rest of the distance on his own two feet. As soon as Hutter crosses the bridge, he was seized by the eerie visions he was so often told me of, the film's author explains. After some journeying, we and Hutter get our first glimpse of Castle Orlock on a mountainside in the distance. With Orlock Castle on our sights, let's take a quick audio tour of the real-life location, Orava Castle. According to the fantastic website Atlas Obscura, Orava Castle is an eerie and majestic place built high up on a rocky cliff over the winding Orava River. It is one of the most beautiful and well-preserved medieval castles in Slovakia, dating back to the 13th century. Now, looking at pictures and reading about it, like it's really cool and it still looks virtually the same as it did back then and I'm sure back when it was originally built. Its long existence started as a military barracks constructed after a Mongol invasion to defend what was then the Kingdom of Hungary. Seven centuries later it still exists now as an elaborate neo-gothic castle that holds many unique myths and legends. If you find yourself in Arava Castle's neck of the woods these days, do yourself a favor and drop in. Castles and fortresses were built to last, and this one is no different. Like I said, it looks just like it did probably the day it was built. Inside, a tour of the Castle Museum takes visitors through the knight's room, painting galleries, weapons rooms, and a collection of many scientific and archaeological artifacts. This is the tourist attraction of a lifetime, if you ask me, and one I would definitely love to experience sometime. But getting back to the movie, as Hutter pushes on toward the castle in the distance, a mysterious horse-drawn carriage pulls up alongside Hutter. The driver is a creepy-looking version of Robin Hood, with feathered pointy hat and all. His face is partially obscured, but as we will later see, it is Count Orlock. Hutter accepts this ride, but as soon as but soon has second thoughts. The first problem of this ride is that this coach is going crazy fast. This was done by speeding up the film. The effect makes the carriage zip through the forest. Looking at this bit through modern movie eyes, this scene can kind of come off as silly or goofy, but back then, though, this probably brought a sense of speed and velocity that wowed a 1920s moviegoer. The second part of this abnormal ride share is their part, the part of the trip that goes through the white forest. The forest is such a vibrant, bright white as the carriage becomes pitch black, a truly surreal forest in an already visually stunning film. Now, this effect was created by using a photo negative to give the forest a bright white look, which gives it its own creepy vibe, and to get this photo negative effect on the carriage, the carriage was covered by a white cloth so it would appear black in the projected image. By this point, Hutter had had enough. He gets out of the stopped carriage to give the driver a piece of his mind, but the driver just points ahead. They are at the front gates of Castle Orlock, 
Hutter makes his way forward to the door as the carriage turns and speeds off. The castle door opens and Hutter presses forward. Once inside, he is welcomed, if you could say that, by the mysterious Count Orlock. He stands in front of Hutter, hands in a praying mantis fashion, his pale face standing out in the darkness. This is our first proper introduction to the good Count. Or, I guess, as things go, probably not so good Count. Orlock is very fashionable in his lounge suit. His fancy hat covers his pale bald head, and the features of his face are legendary at this point. Whether you've seen this movie or not, you can probably tell me what Count Orlock looks like, what Nosferatu looks like. It is just that ingrained in culture today. And so Orlock tells Hutter, you've kept me waiting too long. It's almost midnight. The servants are asleep. The two walk deeper into the castle, and that is how we end Act 1. As we enter the second act, it appears an hour or so has passed. Both men are at a table, Hutter eating food while Orlock examines the weird paperwork Knox sent him. Orlock, almost comically, peers over the paper and intently watches Hutter. It's as if he senses a little, I don't know, blood in the air. And by that I mean Hutter is cutting some bread and cuts his finger while slicing it. Hutter attempts his own first aid, but Orlock, like any good host, makes his way to his guest's aid. And he does it in a totally not creepy way. He says, You've hurt yourself, the precious blood, he cries. Orlock grabs Hutter's hand and starts sucking on his fingers again in a totally non-creepy way. Actually, now, scrap that. This is all creepy. There's, no, there's really no non-creepy way that this goes. And he just gets weirder with what he says next. Can we not stay together a little while longer, my lovely man? It's still quite a long time until sunrise, and I sleep by day, dear fellow. Completely dead to the world, the Count offers. Orlock hushes... Orlock ushers Hutter to a nearby chair. The tired, wounded traveler sits. We leave the prone Hutter and read, As soon as the sun rose, the shadows of the night retreated from Hutter. Hutter awakens from his deep sleep. He stretches out in the morning sunlight, but notices his finger is clean, and with the help of a mirror sees two small wounds in his neck. He pushes away any thoughts of magical, nocturnal creatures when he sees a breakfast feast laid out on the table before him. He eats and drinks any potential worries away, alone, in the castle of mystery. With his breakfast smile behind him, Hutter takes a leisurely stroll through the castle grounds. He comes to an overlook that allows him to view the countryside below. This walk of Hutter's really shows the two sides of Orlok's castle. In the daylight, Orlok's castle is actually quite uh, picturesque, I guess is the word. But once the sun goes down, things get way more ominous and terrifying. Whilst enjoying the nature and fresh air, Hutter takes out a piece of paper and pen to wax a bit poetic to the love he temporarily left. He writes, My darling, my dearest, do not be troubled that your love is so far away. As he's writing this, something flies overhead, causing Hutter to get all swatty. He continues writing, The mosquitoes are a terrible nuisance. Two just bit me on the neck, one on each side, quite close together. He scratches the bite marks. As we make our way through this movie and enjoy some of the tremendous writing, let's turn back to Kevin Jackson, who gives us a glimpse into Hendrick, Henrik Galeen's writing method. Jackson writes, Galeen's script reads very differently from screenplays as we know them today. It reads exactly like a German expressionist poem of its day, with broken lines, a staccato rhythm, 
incomplete sentences, emphatic use of capitals, plenty of triple dots, and a liberal peppering of exclamation marks. So, back in the movie, after some more beautiful prose writing for Ellen, he sees a peasant boy riding a horse in the valley below. Hutter quickly finishes up the letter and heads down to flag down the horse dude. The boy hesitates to come over, knowing the dark history and rumors surrounding Orlok's castle. Hutter waves the letter at the boy, who eventually and cautiously approaches. He runs over to meet the would-be mailman. He doubles down on the letter being urgent and must be delivered post-haste. It is now late in the day and the sun is making its way down, leaving the beautiful nature of earlier to be filled with impending doom and ominous shadows. With the hour late, it is time for Orlok and Hutter to wheel and ordeal. Their meeting takes place in the castle's great hall. The Count is now ready to sign the paperwork and officially take possession of the abandoned building in Weisberg. As Hutter lays out the documents for Orlok, a locket falls from his pocket. The Count sees this and reacts immediately. What could cause such a reaction, you ask? Inside the locket is a portrait of Ellen. Orlok snatches it up in his pointy grasp. He looks at the photo and says to Hutter, Your wife has such a lovely neck. He realizes he is acting weird again and pretends he has no interest in the locker and hands it back over to Hutter. A creeped out Hutter quickly takes it back and shoves it back in his pocket. With the night's awkward moment behind them, Orlok announces, I'll buy the house, that beautiful deserted house opposite yours. With the deals done, Hutter returns to his room. He kisses the picture of Ellen. He closes it up and puts it into his bag. While rummaging around in the bag, he pulls out that book on vampires from earlier at the inn. The page he turns to here reads, At night, that same Nosferatu digs his claws into his victims and suckles himself on the hellish elixir of their blood. He follows that scary line with this upbeat blurb, Beware that his shadow does not engulf you like a demonic nightmare. As Hutter reads about the terrors surrounding him, the clock strikes midnight and startles the poor real estate man. The scared Hutter peeks out his door only to see Count Orlok staring at him from the distance. Hutter, scared out of his wits, jumps into his bed as this door opens on its own as Orlok makes his way in. Hutter pulls the covers over his head. And that's when we turn back to, to his home and we flip back to see Ellen awaken. She arises from her bed, almost trance-like, and walks out onto the balcony. She walks atop the railing before almost falling off, saved by Harding, who had heard the commotion outside. His yelling of her name seems to break her out of the trance state. Harding implores the housekeeper to fetch a doctor. Now we cut back again to Orlok's castle as the Count's dreaded shadow overtakes Hutter. Cut back to Ellen, who startles awake at her lover's peril. She cries out to him. As she does, Orlok seems to sense her. He pulls back from Hutter, and as he does, creepily leaves the room. Now, to say Max Shrek put in an unforgettable performance would be putting it mildly. While other actors would add their pieces of flair in later vampiric portrayals, Shrek set the bar crazy high with an incredibly unique take on the character. In fact, noted film writer and reviewer Roger Ebert had this to say about Max Shrek. Max Shrek, who plays the vampire, avoids most of the theatrical touches that would distract from all later performances, from Bela Lugosi to Christopher Lee to Frank Langella to Gary Oldman. The vampire should come across not like a flamboyant actor, 
but like a man suffering from a dread curse. Shrek plays the Count more like an animal than a human being. Now Helen passes back out, and the doctor says her illness is blood congestion. We learn, the doctor described Ellen's anxiety to me as some sort of unknown illness, but I know on that night her soul heard the call of the death bird. Nosferatu was already spreading his wings. At dawn, Hutter set out to investigate the horrors of the previous night. Hutter awakens with a shock. He looks around as he feels his neck. Now that both Hutter and the sun are both up, the former sets out to explore. He moves about the castle grounds before opening a door to an underground cellar-type thing. It's inside this cellar-type thing where we see a coffin. He slowly approaches it and through a hole in the lid sees his host inside, asleep. Hutter recoils in fear, too scared to even stand. He pulls his body up the stairs to safety. We see some time has passed as night falls on Orlok's castle again. Hutter has locked himself away, still horrified by his discovery. He hears something outside. Under the cover of darkness, Orlok, in super speedy fashion, loads coffins onto his two-horse carriage. Orlok gets inside the fifth and final coffin, and the horses speed off. Intuition tells Hutter that there is only one place Orlok would go. He cries out to Ellen. With a rope made of sheets, Hutter makes his escape from the cursed castle. It is now a race, with the finish line being Ellen's neck back home in Weisberg. Both fellows are moving that way, but in very different fashions. A raft carrying the coffins heads down a river with the raftsmen oblivious to their strange cargo. And that cool image of coffins floating down the river is how we end Act 2. By Act 3, we are in a hospital. A nurse tells the doctor that a man was brought in with a fever by villagers. The man awakens, and it's Hutter. He says one word before passing out again. Coffins! Turning back to our narrator, Nosferatu is coming. Danger was on its way to Weisberg. Professor Bulware of Paracelsian, who was then investigating the secrets of nature and its unifying principles, told me about it. Caskets filled with dirt were loaded onto the double-masted schooner Empusa. The caskets are loaded onto the ship in the darkness of night. The ship must leave tonight. The ship is leaving Galaz and heading to Weisberg, port of embarkation of Varna. The cargo is six crates of dirt for experimental purposes. Before loading the crates slash coffins, the ship folk open one up for inspection. They tip it over, and not only does dirt spill out, but so do rats. One of the rats bites the sailor for good measure. We leave the high sea hijinks for an educational interlude with Professor Bulware. He is teaching his students about predatory plants in nature, comparing them to a vampire. He says this, As the predator knows Nosferatu approached, approached, or no, he doesn't say this, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. This is the next bit of the movie. As the predator knows Nosferatu approached, it seemed the estate agent, Nock, had already begun to fall under his spell, we are told. We find out that Nock had been admitted to the insane asylum one day previous. All he can say is, blood is life, blood is life. Oh yeah, and he's eating flies too. So that's kind of odd behavior. And while we're talking about Nock, let's pause a moment to chat about the man portraying Nock, Alexander Granich. Well, we might not get too many chances to talk about him, so let's get it get it in now. Granich was born April 18, 1890 in Werbowitz, Galicia, Austria-Hungary. Like many talented German Jews who escaped the rise of Nazis in Germany, 
Granich made his way to America. While in the States, he would have a solid career between the stages of New York and the films of Hollywood. Granich died on March 14, 1945 in New York City, New York at the age of 54, and he was buried in Montefiore Cemetery in Queens, New York. So with all this attention being paid to Predators, Polyps, and Mad Men, we can't forget about Ellen. In fact, the movie won't let us. Ellen was often spotted on the beach in the solitude of the dunes. Her eyes scanned the waves and the horizon as she pined for her beloved, we are told. To show this visually, Ellen sits on a bench, the dunes covered in crosses. This is probably, possibly, my favorite shot of the whole film. Ellen sitting in the dunes surrounded by crosses just gets me every time. In a movie with so many visually striking images, this one always sticks with me. And remember that letter that Hutter sent from the castle? It has finally arrived. Harding and his sister happily pass it along to Ellen on the beach. R Ruth reads it to the excited Ellen until she snags the letter for herself. She gets upset as she reads the more ominous bits. She can sense something is wrong. As she reads, we switch back to Hutter, who is shakily leaving the hospital. The nurse advises against leaving, but Hutter says he must get home as quick as possible. And I'm sure she would also advise against life and death battles against undead demons, but that's neither here nor there. And speaking of getting to Weisberg, the ocean lays before us, and in that ocean sails the Ampusa, transport ship of Count Orlock and his boxes o' dirt. Kevin Jackson tells us a bit of the backstory of the ship name Ampusa. In the film, the, in the film, the Demeter, Snoker's name for the doomed ship has become Ampusa, the Greek word for a kind of she-vampire, a goddess who feasts on blood. This is a highly recondite illusion. One suspects the hand of Grau, Jackson explains. Back to Hutter on a horse and back to the sailing ship. Our subjects change at a brisk pace as we follow these two racing dudes. This is a definite race, and the editing of this section really ratchets up the tension as to who will arrive first. Meanwhile, a guard is sweeping Knox's cell. Not paying attention, the guard has a newspaper stolen out of his pocket by the mad Knock. Knock reads the front page of the paper. The article reads, Plague. A plague epidemic has broken out in Transylvania and in the black sea ports of Varna and Galaz. Masses of young people are dying. All victims appear to have the same strange wounds on their necks, the origin of which is still a mystery to the doctors. The Dardanelles have been closed to all ships suspected of carrying the plague. Now this news pleases Nock to no end. The next thing we see are more of this mad, 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 mad race back and forth between Hutter and the ship. This time we stop and stay a while on the Ampusa. Here we see how the crew has been holding up on this bizarre trip. A crew member reports to the captain that a sailor has taken ill below deck. He is delirious. Now I can't imagine this is a good sign and a, probably a bad omen of things to come. As night falls on the ship, the sick mate is seen is seeing horrifying visions of Orlock, and we soon learn that this is only the beginning for the doomed ship, and certainly a candidate for worst cruise ever. It spread like a scourge through the ship. The first sailor that was infected pulled the whole crew down into a dark, watery grave. By the light of the sinking sun, the captain and the first mate say goodbye to the last of their comrades, the film tells us. There's a cool thing going on in the hold of the ship that I missed. It wasn't until reading Lottie Eisner's book that I was tipped off to some Murnau greatness. I'll let Eisner explain. Eisner writes, Murnau used the obsession with inanimate objects much better than many fanatics of expressionism. In the haunted hold of the sailing vessel in which all the sailors have been struck down by death, 
The empty hammock of the dead sailor goes on gently swinging. With the last crew corpse overboard, the first mate decides to take matters into his own hands. He picks up an axe and tells the captain, I'm going below. If I'm not up again in ten minutes... Unfortunately, that leads to, to the terrible decision to head down and check stuff out at night alone with a monster on the ship. And I would say that is a bad call, my friend. Bad, bad call. He chops open one casket and tons of rats pour out. This ruckus wakes up Orlock. The first mate watches a distant cas casket magically open on its own and Orlock's body levitates him into a standing position. The terrified sailor is so scared he runs topside and jumps off the ship as the captain looks bewildered. To protect himself from a similar fate, the captain ties himself to the vessel's wheel. While the captain does this, Orlock stalks him until the scene fades out and we read, The Death Ship Has a New Captain. And with that amazing, amazing line, Act 3 sails on and we enter the home stretch and... Act 4! Our narrator gives us the supernatural scoop. It is difficult to say how the weekend young Hutter was able to overcome all the obstacles of the trip home. Meanwhile, the deadly breath of Nosferatu filled the sails of the ship so that it flew toward its goal with supernatural speed. As the ship sails through the night, Ellen looks off into the night sky trance-like from her balcony. She holds out her arms to a phantom lover. Is it Hutter? Is it Nosferatu? All she can say is, I must go to him. He is coming. Hutter, by a carriage and foot, and Nosferatu by boat, both push onward, Ellen hanging in the balance. Now, one of the great things about this movie is the music, and while we're digging into these super moody and dark parts, it seems only right to talk about the music of the Symphony of the Night. The score of the film was written by Hans Erdmann. Dr. Hans Erdmann Timoteus Guckel was born on November 7, 1882 in Berlin, and died on November 21, 1942 in Berlin. And not only did he write the original music, but he directed it at the premiere. So that's a pretty cool little bit of info. So now at this point, Nock is looking out his cell window and watches the death ship float in. The master is here, the master is here, the madman cackles. Back in the boat, a dark magic opens the cargo hatch. Orlock peeks his head out, pleased that his journey has led him precisely where he wished to be. We next learn that Orlock and Vamps in general seem to only be able to draw their shadowy strength from the cursed earth from which they were buried, which would explain Orlock's handful of dirt-filled coffins. On that note, under the cover of Dark, the Count carries his coffin off the boat and under an arch as he officially enters the quaint village. As he moves through town, we see rats. Rats leave the cargo hold and scurry to solid ground. Not to be outdone, however, our man Hutter is making his way back into town as well. Whether rat, realtor, or... Uh, I don't really know an R word for Orlock, but anyway, all roads lead to Weisberg. And we see the happy reunion of Hutter and Ellen. As they embrace, Orlock, coffin in hand, pauses outside their home. He senses her presence as Hutter and Ellen kiss and embrace. Orlock scurries on. Hutter tells her there is no need to be afraid. Everything is okay now, as Nosferatu literally disappears into his new abandoned abode. It's daylight now, and authorities are examining the recently arrived ghost ship. They find no living souls on board. They bring out the now-dead captain. The captain's log comes out next and tells an incredibly disturbing story. Now here's what that log recorded. Varna, 12th of July, crew. Besides myself, the captain, one helmsman, one ship's mate, five sailors. 
Day 2, 13 July, one sailor has taken ill. For the purposes of this podcast, I'll save you the ship's heading and wind details. You can trust us when they, we say there, or in fact, when there was in fact wind blowing during the ship's voyage. Day 3, 14 July, mate is talking nonsense. Claims an unknown passenger is below deck. Day 10, 22 July, rats in the hold of the ship. Danger of plague. When the investigators read that, the alarm bells start clanging. All citizens are ordered to return to their homes and bolt all windows and doors. In the now empty streets, the town crier reads a proclamation. This order the municipal authorities forbids the citizenry from transporting the plague-stricken to the hospital, as this will only make things worse. Crosses marked in chalk adorn the doors of those infected and afflicted. Back to Hutter and Ellen. Hutter had made Ellen promise not to touch the book which had caused him such frightening visions, but she found its strange force irresistible. We learn of Ellen's connection to her lover's vampire book. She reads the part of Nosferatu suckling people's hellish elixir of blood. She reads the warnings of being overtaken by his demonic shadow. But it's the next bit she reads that really sets us on a path to this story's climax. She reads, Deliverance is possible by no other means, but that an innocent maiden maketh the vampire heed not the first crowing of the cock, this done by the sacrifice of her own blood. While the idea of sunlight killing vampires is entry-level vamp lore these days, this wasn't always the case. In fact, in the original book, the sun rays, sun's rays can only weaken the creature of the night. In Nosferatu, Grau and Galeen decided to change things up a bit. Mark Mancini from MentalFloss.com tells us why this change may have been made. Mancini writes, For the sake of a more visually compelling climax, Grau and screenwriter Henrik Galeen decided to make the sun's light utterly fatal to the poor Count Orlock, who disappears in a puff of smoke when he is lured into a well-lit room. Thus, a resilient horror cliché was born. Now, after reading this bit of the book, she realizes what must be done and embraces the entering Hutter. She points at the abandoned building and tells her love that the building has been haunting her, haunting her every night. By this point, paranoia was running rampant through Weisberg. Who was healthy? Who was sick? Ellen stares out her window watching a procession of people carrying caskets of the dead through the town at night. This is another one, another cool shot. The way it was framed really enhanced the somberness of the moment and really pours on the doom and gloom of the moment. This also brings up the subject of plague and pandemic. While we know about these, while we know about these in the COVID-tinged world we live in today, the same can be said for the war-weary German audiences in the early 1900s. We turn back to Kevin Jackson. He writes, Germany had been one of the nations afflicted by the appalling Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918 and 19, which killed more people worldwide than all the guns and bombs of the previous four years. Contemporary audiences for Nosferatu, with its unsettling scenes of plague rats and mass burials, knew the terrors of contagion intimately. With angst and sorrow, she reads the passage on how to kill Nosferatu. She convinces herself to make it happen. As she comes to this realization, the townspeople sought a scapegoat and a sacrifice. That would come in the form of Nock. He had escaped and strangled a guard. Rumor and innuendo spread, labeling him the vampire. An angry mob hunts him down. The crowd chase bits are pretty neat in their own right. Lots of misdirection and frenetic action really ratcheted up the excitement. Across from Ellen's bedroom, Orlock stands at his window, watching. 
She senses his creepiness and startles awake. Trance Ellen walks to her window. She opens the window as Nosferatu makes his way out of the building. Ellen passes out and Hutter carries her back to bed, unaware of the immediate danger. She pleads for Hutter to get Professor Bulware. She kisses her Hutter one last time. With Hutter otherwise occupado, she can go through with her plan slash sacrifice. Orlock and his shadow makes his way up the stairs. This is arguably the most famous cinematic shadow in history. People, have never, people who have never seen a silent movie probably recognize Orlock's creepy, elongated shadow making his way up the stairs. Author Kevin Jackson speculates as to how this iconic visual came to be. Jackson writes, Neither Galeen's script nor Murnau's annotations make any reference to these now famous shadow effects, nor to the shadows cast over Ellen's body in the following scene. It seems safe to assume that they were an inspiration of the interiors shoot in Berlin and that Grau built the sets to accommodate them. So turning back to the movie, Ellen falls back into bed as Orlok's shadowy hand grabs her. As Ellen is being attacked, Hutter is waking up Bulware for help. We cut back to Orlok who is suckling Ellen's blood from that gorgeous neck we heard about earlier. <coughs> Sorry. As Orlok continues to feed, we see the mob has caught Nock. A rooster crows. It's morning, and Orlok slowly lifts his grotesque face up from Ellen's neck. He soon realizes he has made the classic blunder. Nock, now in a cell, feels it too. He calls out for the master. Orlok stands up as the first rays of sunlight engulf him. He writhes in pain before disintegrating into a plume of smoke. Nock senses the pain and cries out, the master is dead. Ellen regains consciousness one last time, calling out for her beloved. He runs in and embraces her as her ultimate sacrifice is made complete. Bolware watches in sorrow as Hutter watches Ellen die. And the truth bore witness to the miracle. At that very moment, the great death came to an end, and the shadow of the death bird was gone, as if obliterated by triumphant rays of the living sun. In the final shot of the film, we see Orlok's castle transform from its gothic splendor to rubble. According to writer Mark Mancini, the crumbled and destroyed version of Orlok's castle is not the Orava castle we talked about earlier. In an article for the great website Mental Floss entitled 11 Nightmarish Facts About Nosferatu, Mancini writes, The very last scene in Nosferatu is a shot of our vampire's Transylvanian home, which has collapsed after his death. To shoot this footage, Murnau traveled to Starrad, a long-abandoned Slovakian castle that's been decaying since the 1950s. And that, folks, is the end of the movie portion of Nosferatu. And that's how our tale ends. As we head out of the fictional world and make our way back to the real world, let's take a look at the results critically and financially of Nosferatu. So, in review... Let's review some of the reviews of Nosferatu. And there really is no one better to dive into the depths of a film and extract the philosophical notes and break down all the emotional beats than official reviewer of this here podcast, Mr. Mordant Hall of the New York Times. We here love the guy. Everything he writes is an adventure. You never know what you're going to get. Well, I guess actually you do. More than likely you're going to get a negative review with lots of passive-aggressive digs at everyone involved in the film. Wait. 
we did get one movie that had a positive review, so there's that, I suppose. And his review of Nosferatu lives up to the hype. Let's read from the June 4th, 1929 edition of the New York Times, shall we? Now, I'm going to warn you at the onset. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a long quote, but it is worth the ride. Trust me on this one. So, in the New York Times, Morton Hall writes, Nosferatu the Vampire, a film supposed to have been inspired by the blood-curdling Dracula, is not especially stirring. It's the sort of thing one could watch at midnight without, having, without its having much effect upon one's slumbering hours. In fact, yesterday at the Film Guild Cinema, where this production is now on view, there was at least one man who dozed audibly, and another who was either terrified or was enjoying 40 or more winks. But who knows if one or both of these Greenwich Village inhabitants were dreaming of those portions of the picture upon which they had permitted their lazy eyes to fall. There were, however, no signs of the persons having uneasy minds. This would-be spine-chiller neglects little in its desire to make somebody or other look around for werewolves, ghosts, or vampires. It was directed by F.W. Murnau for a German concern called the Prana Film Productions. The backgrounds are often quite effective, but most of it seems like cardboard puppets doing all they can to be horrible on papier-mâché settings. The chief fig figure in this orgy of goose flesh is Count Nosferatu, who is a vampire, according to this story. Prior to disturbing a peaceful village, he contents himself by sleeping in a coffin, using the bro broken lid as a coverlet. He goes on a voyage, and in picturing this particular chapter, Mr. Murnau has made full use of coffins and rats. Shadows are employed to add to the horror of the chief figure, who has extra joints stuck onto the ends of his fingers. It is a production that is rather more of a soporific than a thriller. Max Schreck's movements as Nosferatu are too deliberate to be lifelike. This uncanny person is supposed to have his hands crossed because of his weakness for resting in the coffin. He shuns daylight and creeps about after dark. Gustav, von Gustav Wagenheim does quite well as the good young man, Waldemir Hutter, who has all sorts of more or less terrifying experiences to get money for himself and his beloved wife. Yeah, that's that's a little bit harsher than normal. I mean, Morton Hall is usually harsh, but I feel like that seems unnecessary. But maybe the better the movie, the harsher the review? I mean... Who knows really what's clicking around in that noggin of Mordens. All I know is that I appreciate his work and always look forward to our reviewerly visits. On the other side of the review spectrum was the December 31st, 1921 issue of Variety. Variety had this to say about the horrors of Nosferatu. Murnau proved his directorial artistry in Sunrise for Fox about three years earlier, but in this picture he's a master artisan demonstrating not only the knowledge of the subtler side of directing but in the photography one shot of the sun crackling at dawn is an eye filler among others of extremely imaginative beauty is one which takes in a schooner sailing in a rippling stream photographed in such a manner that it has the illusion of color empty shattering buildings photographed to suggest the desperate desolation brought on by the vampire is extremely effective symbolism Max Schreck as the vampire is an able pantomimist and works clock-like, his makeup suggesting everything that's goose-pimply. Now that, I feel, is a better representation of the film. Now while I'm on the topic of reviews and feelings, 
I should talk a little bit about what I thought about this flick and the whole movie package in general. I adore this film. Years ago, this was one of the first silence I ever watched, and I've been drawn to it ever since. As I watched it back then, I could sense the great stuff about it, without really being able to put words to the techniques and subtle things Murnau did that really built that layer of terror and uneasiness. As I researched and learned more, it's really cool how masterfully Murnau could guide the viewer on such an amazing adventure. The performances of everyone were fantastic and definitely worth catching. Obviously, any talk of acting has to start with Max Shrek. It isn't very often that one role can be so legendary and unforgettable. Every move Shrek makes is creepy and haunting. You can see why rumors of Shrek's mysterious life could grow. He became one with the Orlock, and it comes out every second he's on screen. Author S.S. Prower, in his book Nosferatu, Phantom der Nacht, talks about Murnau's Symphony of Horror, which we just witnessed, and when you think about it, it really does sort of resemble a symphony. Power writes, Murnau's film called it a symphony, but it divides into five rather than four movements, each culminating in an important point in the plot. One, a provincial German ideal and the undertaking of a quest for profit and adventure. Two, the journey into the unknown until the final frontier is crossed into the land of phantoms. Three, the confrontation with the vampire on his own ground. Four, the race to foil the vampire's fell designs. And five, the destruction the vampire wreaks within the setting in which the film started and his own annihilation. This is a way of looking at the film that I never considered, but it is a cool way to sum up exactly what we witnessed. Probably the most striking thing about this flick to me are the visuals. You honestly could blindly pause the film at any part, any moment of the movie, and have a legit piece of art in front of you. Print it out, hang it on a wall. It's that good. And it's these stunning visuals that Murnau creates are legendary for a reason. They're gorgeous to look at and are coming from a cinematic mind in his prime, no doubt about it. From the famous shadows of Orlok to, Hel to Ellen sitting on the shore amongst the crosses, nothing is without flair and artistry. And to this day, I still find new things I missed on, pre on each additional viewing. There's so much to take in, and any movie that constantly shows you new and subtle things you've never s noticed is, I would consider, a top-notch movie. As far as the DVD itself, there are a few things to talk about that were included in the package. This version had quite a few special features. There were a couple cool documentaries. One was called The Language of Shadows, The Early Years and Nosferatu, a 52-minute documentary looking back at the life and work of director F.W. Murnau. There is also a shorter documentary about the restoration this movie went through. You also get some excerpts from other Murnau films and a photo gallery. And while we're discussing the coolest stuff of the flick, we should take a moment to praise the music again. This version had a recreation of Hans Erdmann's original 1922 score. Bernd Heller, who recreated the score, was able to resurrect this lost piece of music. Heller writes, Erdmann's highly, highly imaginative transformations of the musical pieces help one understand the movie by forming an artistic musical web of leitmotifs and dramatic action. For example, there are motifs for certain characters, like the vampire or Ellen and Hutter, but there are also musical representations of scenes of action, like departure, pursuit, illusion, etc. It is amazing that Heller's investigative work was able to bring Erdman's score back to audiences. Included with this DVD is an essay written by Bernd Heller discussing the search he went on to find this presumed lost piece of legendary music. 
definitely worth a read. And also, since this is already crazy, crazy long, I'm not going to dwell too much on the post-show uh, Florence Stoker suing Prana Film, Prana Film going bankrupt, uh, Florence Stoker just trying to destroy every piece of footage, every reel of film with Nosferatu on it. Um, we did a, the season finale of season one. The episode immediately previous to this covers that in great detail. It's a wild, wild story and definitely worth checking out. But in the length of, uh, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go too deep, too deep into it now. But please do check that episode out. That definitely gives you uh, a look into how Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, how the movie was filmed, and most entertainingly, the aftermath of the movie and how we still have this movie with us to this day. So now we're going to start rounding out this episode. Like I said, it's been a really long one, and I appreciate all of you for sticking with us. Um, but now we're going to talk about where are they now. As we lay this episode to rest until it rises again, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is a segment where we join our favorite kook, our kooky and spooky idols on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, and celebrity spectacle of cemetery exploration converge in Where Are They Now? your guide to paying your respects to the film stars that have entertained us so much. I don't know when we'll have a chance to talk Max Schreck again, so let's head to Germany for a posthumous update on the whereabouts of Herr Schreck. Schreck would die of a heart attack on February 20th, 1936, at the age of 56 in Munich. He had just been in a show and was not feeling so great. He would be sent to a hospital where he passed away the following day. Despite dying on February 20th, he was laid to rest on March 14th, 1936. His gravesite is located at Wilmersdorf Waldfriedhof Stansdorf in Brandenburg, Germany. He was survived by his wife Fanny, who would die in 1951. Schreck's gravestone is fairly quiet and unassuming, which, from everything I have read, seems to be how he lived his life. It's an upward-facing rectangle bearing his name and dates of his birth and death. Now, as always, we'll post a picture of it on the Golden Silence Instagram page and on the Golden Silence Twitter page, so definitely check it out and I'll have some pictures of that and some other cool pictures of things surrounding the film. But it's definitely a subdued gravesite for someone whose legend is seemingly immortal. And with that, this long, long trek we have been on, it is time to bring this supersized season two premiere episode of the Golden Silence podcast to a close. We hope you enjoyed sinking your teeth into the movie masterpiece that is Nosferatu. Let us know what you thought about this movie. What are your favorite shots? Did you think Max Shrek was actually a vampire? We will for sure have more Nosferatu shenanigans for all you cool kids out there. There is a lot of Orlocky vampiric goodness coming down the pipe, and we hope you are just as excited for it as we are. And again, thank you, thank you for sticking it out through this long, but hopefully informative look at Nosferatu. And before we go our separate ways, remember to hop on Instagram and let us know what you thought of this episode. Tell us your favorite cinematic vampires on Twitter, at GoldenSilence1. And if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast service that allows you to rate and review, do leave your thoughts. It means so much to the team here at the Golden Silence Podcast to see those ratings and reviews and see that you are enjoying the program. We love and appreciate every single listen you give us and work super hard to make this a show worth listening to and to hopefully make it a show worth 
recommending to friends and family. So thanks again to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. And remember, the silence are golden, and the talkies, they're just a fad.